If you haven't yet seen HBO's McMillions, well, you should. It tells the tale of one of the biggest, most high-profile scams in American history, involving public relations debacles for two huge American institutions, McDonald's and the FBI. After a couple of paragraphs, this doesn't read like the normal FBI press release. When I swung around my chair, I'll never forget this, looking at my boss, David, saying, David, do you know where this came from? He's like, is it a good story? I'm like, you take a look at it. And he starts looking at his eyes kind of wide and goes, yeah, I don't think we're supposed to have this. Now, I would be a total jerk if I spoiled this six-part docuseries for you, so I'm not going to do that. The show is about the cops and robbers angle of the story, and I could not possibly do a better job of telling it than directors James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte did. Rather, we're going to talk about the public relations battles that were fought behind the scenes of what could have been an epic disaster for both McDonald's and the FBI. And I'm going to do that with the help of series creators James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte as well as a PR professional who you'll recognize from the show, John Boyanowski. If you haven't yet seen the show, it'll be an edifying introduction to a fascinating story. And if you have seen the show, it'll answer some of those burning PR questions that I'm sure ran through your mind while you watched it. Like, why in the world would McDonald's choose to cooperate with a documentary about how they got scammed for $24 million? I'm Dusty Weiss. From PodCamp Media, this is Lead Balloon podcast about PR, marketing, and branding nightmares, and the well-meaning communications professionals who live them. As someone who nerds out about these kinds of stories, it's really a lot of fun for me to see a tale of public relations disaster get as much press as McMillions has. But I will note that here on Lead Balloon, this is a thing that we do on a monthly basis. So if you haven't yet, take this moment to subscribe to our podcast feed. I'd also appreciate a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app or any comments you'd care to leave. I'm also posting interview videos and pictures from these tales on my social media. So follow PodCamp Media on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for all those sorts of extra details. So this McMillions show on HBO, all six episodes are out now, which is great because you're going to want to binge watch this if you haven't yet. And let's be honest. With social distancing going on, you've probably got the time. It's a unique and super fun take on documentary storytelling, but also the most fascinating story that you've never heard before. Everybody's heard about the annual McDonald's Monopoly Prize giveaway that ran during the 90s, but why'd it suddenly vanish? Well, the McDonald's Monopoly game was fixed. McDonald's Monopoly game gave millions of people a chance to win. But from 1989 to 2001, there were almost no legitimate million-dollar winners. The FBI told us the game pieces are being stolen. McDonald's was shocked. Of course, a lot of us in the PR and marketing world watch this show from the perspective of, holy cow, what a debacle that must have been behind the scenes. And so to tell the PR story behind the story, so to speak, I reached out to the directors, James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, who spoke to me from their coronavirus quarantine in L.A. You know, this has been a a wild ride. I mean, we've been working on this together since 2017. And, you know, James, you know, came across this in 2012. So it's, you know, it's a long time coming to have it all out there, to have the reaction from people. It was fun because people would watch episode one thinking that this was just going to be some fun, funny comedy, and then realize like by episode three, 
that it was far more involved. It's been a great experience. I've got to say, this is a podcast about epic disasters in PR and marketing, and it's pretty safe to say that for both McDonald's and the FBI, this is a story where those organizations kind of teetered on the edge of disaster for a while there. But what's crazy about it to me is that so few people knew this story. Uh, Like you guys, I'm a 90s kid who was obsessed with the McDonald's Monopoly sweepstakes when I was growing up, but... The news broke that this Jerry Jacobson had been stealing the winning pieces and scammed McDonald's out of 24 million bucks. And then a few days later, 9-11 happened and everything about the McDonald's scam was buried under the constant press of tragic news that followed. So, James, how did you get turned on to this story and and what made you drag Brian into it as well? (laughs) Uh, It it started oh so long ago. Uh, It feels like an eon ago now. But... um... It was in 2012, I was uh, laying in bed, just uh, going through Reddit, as I will do sometimes to unwind before I fall asleep. As one is wont to do, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And scrolling through and in between the funny cat videos and other random articles, there was a TIL. Today I learned nobody really won the McDonald's Monopoly game. And uh, I grew up in the 90s. So I was absolutely obsessed with that game. My first job when I turned 16 was at McDonald's during the time of all this stuff going on. Oh, I hope you've got pictures. (laughs) You know, one of the days we actually shot in a, in a real McDonald's that still looked like it was a nineties design inside. And I wore my original uniform shirt the day we shot there. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't trigger like PTSD in you. (laughs) Actually, it's, it's been so long now that it was uh, it's actually kind of fun. Although I, I, the sound of the fry machine going off, like the, the actual, basically hearing that beep, like gives me crazy flashbacks. But, <laughs> but I, I looked, tapped on the article, read it. It was just a small local Jacksonville newspaper article, really not much detail because it was only talking about the arrest, the, the first wave of arrest. And I had to know more. I looked into it and was surprised to not really find that much about it. And over the next year or so, just kept digging into it whenever I could, either bored at work or just in general on my own time. And eventually put a freedom of information request in with the U.S. government because I wanted to know way more detail than I was able to find. Uh, It took over three years for that to go through. And then once once it did go through, uh, I was able to find out the FBI agents and federal prosecutor who worked the case and reached out to them. They said this is their favorite case. No one has ever talked to them about it before. And at that point, I called up Brian, um, who I'd known for a while and has a great history in documentary filmmaking. And I was like, man, I think I got something big here. Let's grab lunch and talk about it. So they tell you in film school that a good story needs stakes, conflict, suspense, but also characters. And in this, this story has it all. You've got your downtrodden heroes, your megalomaniacs, organized crime, zany FBI agents. Like, at what point in your filmmaking journey together did you start to realize that you had hit the jackpot when it comes to characters? I mean, it, you know, we didn't really think of it like we hit the jackpot. You know, our approach to how we worked with everybody who came on board, who, you know, shared their point of view in the story was probably a bit more relaxed than we've done in, in past instances or past projects that we've been a part of. And so we, we approached it from a different angle. And hopefully that helped allow these characters to really 
pop. And we did find that, that they were interesting and that they were good storytellers. And of course, yeah, I mean, that, that, those are all the ingredients that you need for a good series. And, uh, and we, we did find ourselves in that situation many times where we're like, all right, we're going to, we're going to find a, a dud, <laughs> you know, like someone that we just <laughs> like are just so bored with, but, but it wasn't the case. You know, episode one, we came out of the gate with the point of view from the FBI. We really wanted you to experience like that feeling of you as the audience almost being part of the investigation, right? Figuring things out as they were figuring things out. Because, you know, when you when you play along and, and you have that procedural element to, uh, to follow, uh, it's engaging. Like you want to know how is this going to lead to this next clue? And then once we flip that, you know, in episode two, uh, we start introducing, you know, the criminal component to it. Uh, it just expanded out the world. And uh, you, you can't really predict what you're going to find when you go out sometimes. Hopefully we just, you know, took advantage of every great moment and found a way to work it into the story. Whenever I tell somebody about this show, if they've seen it before, the first thing that they bring up is Agent Doug Matthews. <laughs> I see this note on the desk, McDonald's, Monopoly, fraud, and I go, give me that damn thing, because I'm bored to death with this healthcare garbage, right? It's important, but I was ready to move on. I don't know if you guys have seen the FX cartoon Archer. I can't hear you Hi. over the sound of my deafening awesomeness. But this guy is secret agent Sterling Archer in the flesh, just all up and down. Man, undercover is awesome. <laughs> And I look at him as a storyteller and I say, man, this guy is a great character. He's a gold mine. But then I look at him as someone who's also a PR practitioner. And if I'm the stuffy uptight sort, I say, uh, this guy's a little bit of a loose cannon. I'm not sure that I want him out there unfiltered with this documentary crew. So how did you, as a documentary filmmaker, James, get the FBI to let this guy off his leash and do these interviews with you? <laughs> it was. Uh, honestly, it was a, a war of attrition, basically, of just going. There's so many steps that you have to go through to get cooperation from the FBI. And, and then I went through them all and was patient and waited for about three and a half years for the freedom of information request to go through. And then even more time to reach out to FBI headquarters to get permission to talk to the people involved. Uh, Doug Matthews is the only active agent left out of everyone. So Talking to everyone that was retired was helpful, but Doug was obviously one of the key figures. But it was it was all about relationship building, building relationship with Mark Debro and Tom Kinnear and and Chris Graham, the FBI agents and and federal prosecutor that worked with Doug for years. Having them vouch for me and what I'm what I'm doing was also very helpful as well. So it really is one big lesson from this entire project is it's about relationship building. It's it's not just these people aren't robots. They, they want to know that they can trust you and, and actually like being around you. Well, I don't know if you guys saw this, but after the first couple episodes came out, one of the search terms that was trending on Google was, where is Doug Matthews now? <laughs> As you mentioned, uh, he's the only agent in the show that hasn't retired yet. He's still out there. But Brian, is there any light that you can shed on that burning question? What's, what's he up to these days? <laughs> Well, you know, the FBI likes to keep, uh, you know, their secrets uh, pretty close as to his whereabouts and uh, what undercover operation he might be up to next. So uh, I'm not sure if we can disclose that. <laughs> he's he's keeping busy. I mean, that's 
the creativity that he used when he was a young, hungry rookie agent uh, is no different than how he approaches cases today from everything that we can tell. I mean, his energy level certainly hasn't seemed to wane uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, so that energy is, you know, is infectious. So we have to imagine that the rest of his, uh, his department, the other FBI agents working closely with him, uh, love to be around him as well. I can only imagine what it must be like to work with a guy like that. <laughs> I, I do know that they started calling him Hollywood now in, in, <laughs> his, in his office. <laughs> Having, as a former reporter, worked around cops a lot and the occasional FBI agent, I know how much those guys like to pick on each other over stuff like this. But you got the sense, you said, from all these folks that they really wanted to talk to you guys. Why do you think that was? Were they just so keen on this story that they couldn't wait to share it with the world? Yeah, well, part of it is the fact that there's so many things, really most of the things that FBI agents and federal prosecutors do, they can't talk about. Either they are classified and they're just very sensitive subjects that can't be talked about, or especially for white collar, a lot of what they do can tend to be somewhat boring, where they're looking at bank records, they're looking at tax statements, they're doing things like that, but it's not the most thrilling situation. There, there are a lot of times cases based off of historical records. The interesting thing with this is they could actually talk about it, but it also used so many different investigative techniques because they had the historical aspect where they're looking at people who had won in the past, but then they had an active crime happening. It was basically like a drug case and they were following a product that was being moved. So to be able to really show the full scope of the investigative power of the FBI was really exciting for them. Of course, one of my favorite moments in the show comes right as the FBI is getting set to take down this criminal enterprise. But before the sting can happen, they accidentally leak the whole thing to a newspaper reporter in South Carolina. So coming up after the break, this was an active investigation that just ended up in our fax machine. And of course, me being the young reporter, I want to write a story. That newspaper reporter, now a PR agency owner, tells the story of the time that the FBI paid a little visit to his office to avert a PR disaster. And then later, what about McDonald's? How do they approach the public embarrassment of having been scammed out of $24 million over the course of a decade? That's all coming up here on Lead Balloon. This is Lead Balloon, and I'm Dusty Weiss. HBO's McMillions documentary is a fascinating story of organized crime, undercover intrigue, and $24 million in fraud, but also a story of extreme public relations crises. John Boyanowski is the founder of Complete PR, a full-service agency in Greenville, South Carolina, and in 2001, in the days before an FBI sting took down the McMillions fraud ring, John was working as a cops and courts reporter at the Greenville News. When a strange fax landed on his desk one day, it was the entire FBI case summary and it was not supposed to be made public. After a couple of paragraphs, this doesn't read like a normal FBI press release because there's no arrests named at first. There's names everywhere, but then I start reading, they're talking about heavy surveillance. And I remember that directly. And relaying phone conversations. And I started thinking, this is like no FBI release I've ever seen. 
And I start flipping through page after page of it. I'm seeing person X was seen at the corner of this and this, driving this car. And the way our newsroom was set up, we had these kind of cubicles and I could, you know, swung around my chair. And I'll never forget this, looking at my boss, David, and saying, David, do you know where this came from? He goes, yeah, it's from the fax machine. I put it on your desk this morning. And I said, did you get a chance to read it? And he's like, no. And I can see him starting to look at me like, this is a normal. John Boyanowski doesn't ask questions like this. He just puts his head down and starts writing it. And he's like, is it a good story? I'm like, you take a look at it. <laughs> and he gets few, same like me, starts looking at his eyes kind of wide and goes, yeah, I don't think we're supposed to have to have this, have this. And so we bring it to our managing editor and we kind of quickly realize that this was an active investigation that just ended up in our fax machine. And the McMillions documentary just kind of glosses over how this fax accidentally got sent to you, but I think it's a point worth fleshing out. Your paper was on the fax machine speed dial at the FBI office in Atlanta, and someone at the FBI just mistakenly mashed that button. That's the leading theory. There's a couple of theories on that. Um, one is, we've never known, and the FBI, I don't think, ever really figured out. Um, the one theory is that, yes, we were, we were getting media all the time from them. So I'm sure they would have, instead of typing out our nine-digit code every time, they had a Greenville News button. And I'm sure instead of trying to hit Greenville FBI, it went to Greenville News instead of Greenville FBI. But another theory that was told to us was at some point, a few years before me, there had been another reporter, some young cub reporter, who was covering the FBI, and his name was the same as an agent on the case. Oh, and so okay. when who was ever in the Atlanta office hits, let's say, you know, Agent X, well, that's the same name as a reporter, so it went to the Greenville News. Two theories we've heard. It's one of those, it's the little mystery in the case that no one ever quite knew how it happened, and we didn't find out that day. And I just literally never asked until the Nick Millions came up and the HBO guys came and talked to me. It is one of the little mysteries of how it ended up for us. But people keep asking, it's well, why was the Greenville News even on a speed dial? Well, it's hard to believe before email became a prevalent thing. That's how information was sent over, fax machines. It seems archaic, but it was only 20 years ago. And I'm so glad, uh, just personally speaking here as a public relations professional, I'm so glad at this juncture that the fax machine has been relegated to like the realm of the dinosaurs <laughs> because it was a, a heinous and terrible way to transmit information. Oh, it's terrible. Some of the folks in the show hint that they think that it was FBI agent Doug Matthews who mistakenly sent the fax. I take it you don't know or, or you don't want to speculate at this point? I have no idea. I, I couldn't even tell you. I mean... The people I knew at the office in Greenville, the ones I knew, so I, I couldn't even tell you. No idea. So you've got this thing in your hands, and it's very clearly not a press release, and it's very clearly about an active investigation. Like you, I'm a PR guy with a background as a news reporter, and I've, I've been on both sides of this situation like you described here, where there's this big scoop, and it's gotten into the wild before it was supposed to. But there are also some very real repercussions of running with it. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there was a very quick, very intense closed-door meeting in your editor's office. How did that go? Yeah, it's interesting. We debated for about 30 minutes, of several of us, myself and several editors, about what to do with it. And of course, me being the young reporter, I want to write a story, you know, active investigation of the McDonald's Monopoly game by the FBI and all this stuff going on. It's all centered in South Carolina, as far as we could tell. I mean, I just kind of, it quickly went from like, ooh, this is a really big story to, we didn't get this our, on ourselves. This just fell in our laps. This isn't really something we did journalism for. And so the great thing, and I was, and I said at the time, I was kind of upset. So I was like, oh, here's my big break. And this is my big story. But my editors were 100% right. We didn't need to write the story because we were going to be jeopardizing an active investigation. 
not because someone told us about it. It wasn't like McDonald's called us or we had an agent who said, here's the break on the story. We found it by accident. I feel like news reporters catch a bad rap, especially in the movies and TV, as being these sort of like self-serving, one-dimensional characters <laughs> where they're they're only driven by, oh, I got to get the scoop. I got to get the scoop. Get the big story. Put it out there. And in a case like this, I think it really drives home how many different factors go into the decision of publish or don't publish, yeah. even if that discussion seldom gets observed by the public. Yeah, and that's a great question and great observation because we're only going back 19 years ago now, barely 20 years, two decades, and newsrooms have changed a lot and the media has changed a lot. You know, today is how quickly can you tweet out the wrong information? The safeguards have even gotten tougher to get into. So that's one thing about the Greenwald News is we had those safeguards in place and there was for lack of a a PR firm term, there was a crisis point. And I think Chris knew that in his head. It was like, okay, here's how we vet these things. Um, But you're right, news people do get a bad rap. But I think it is something to show is that, yes, there is integrity in this this field. Because as as you already noted, had you gone ahead and published this story, I mean, this was just a day or two before the planned FBI sting to catch these guys. That would have been completely just blown away. Yes, yes. And what what would have that done? You know, and, <laughs> there's no reason. Yes, yeah. Like that's not as a reporter ruining a criminal sting is not something you feel good about when actual bad people are being taken off the street. Do you ever think though what might have happened to you personally if you had published this story? Oh, that's a great and interesting question. Um, I don't think about it, believe it or not. Um, Maybe I would have gotten more attention as a reporter and maybe left Greenville. But the thing is, I started to love Greenville. I probably wouldn't have left. And eventually I met my wife. I have two kids. I have a nice home here. I'm very happy having her and those two kids in my life and our cat and our dog. And so I think if I left Greenville, that would have never happened. So from that perspective, I'm I'm very happy that the story didn't get published. because I would have been here to be my wife. So I know it sounds pokey and corny, but that's kind of who I am. So. That's very sweet because I was driving at something completely different because speaking from experience <laughs> here, I can say that there are repercussions when you cross a federal agency as a news reporter. Uh, one, once upon a time, I found myself in some hot water with the TSA and Homeland Security, and that is not a story that I think I'm going to be sharing anytime soon. Well, it sounds like I need to do a podcast and interview you about that because that sounds interesting. <laughs> well, you've got my number. You know where to find me. <laughs> So you guys make the decision not to run with this story before you ever talked to the FBI. And I I think it was the right decision. But then there's this whole other process of calling up the FBI and saying, uh, hey, guys, you sent us this, but I, I don't think you meant to. And they don't know at that juncture that you had not decided to publish. So did you try to use that leverage and and how so? I wasn't privy to the phone call. That was our managing editor, Chris Weston, who did the phone call for that. And Chris, a little background, he had been in newspapers in South Carolina 25 years at that point. He was probably one of the most respected editor and reporters in the state. And he had this great voice. I always said he, he, he sounded like Charles Bronson when he wanted to, but made Charles <laughs> Bronson sound like he's singing Ave Maria. And he can just go in there. I'm sure they're like, what's going on? Why is Chris Weston calling us from the Greenville News? He, he wasn't a guy who made social phone calls. And I think he just laid it out. I was like, look, we have this information. We're not supposed to have it. We want to give it back to you, but we need something. You know, do we get a better story down the road? Do we get the exclusive? I, I, I'm pretty sure Chris asked for exclusive. And they're like, look, we can't give you the day before. We because we're gonna make all these arrests, but we'll give you a little bit more access. And I think that was a general deal that we would get some photos as they walk some people into the courthouse and maybe a little more detail about you know the actual investigation. 
And so that was that. But their big thing was, okay, we need, the, the FBI is like, we're coming over there right now to get the, get this document. Like right that afternoon? Yes. Yeah, that, that was gone by lunchtime. You know, obviously they had been stapled when it came off our fax machine. But one of the editors decided, oh, no, we better unstaple this. So it didn't look like we had been, you know, walking around to copy this for three or four days. So when they unstapled, of course, there's two holes in there where they're going to staple. Oh, no. So they restaple it so it doesn't look like anything. And according to my one editor, who was kind of a yarn spinner, but there, there was probably some truth in it. He said within five minutes after the FBI agents, you know, picked up the document from Chris, thanked him left the door they were back to like where's the other copies they're like what do you mean it's like this has been stapled on staple stapled again so and you know that was a good leap of faith of the fbi is you know and us it's like you know we gave them the facts you know they believed us the greenville news that we didn't have 15 copies sitting in a vault somewhere downstairs so it's funny to me because having dealt with law enforcement i know that they can come across kind of strong sometimes yeah. and that's more true than ever when they're feeling weak or like they've got egg on their face they can just come in and just overcompensate and so when you talk about them like pulling out the magnifying glass and <laughs> checking the staples that is immediately what pops into my mind <laughs> it could have been or i think it might have been more that they were so egg on their face like let's make sure nothing goes wrong in in the name of uh trading stories and, and keeping it fair here it, it does remind me of a time when i was a reporter i got a tip from a, a rival law enforcement agency that some prison guards at the local supermax were uh kind of stealing prescription painkillers from the inmates interesting sort of like a three for you one two three for me situation <laughs> and yeah. the warden really didn't want me to run with the story but i told him i had him dead to rights and so i'm like i want to i want to get your comments on the record on this and he's like all right Come on down to the prison, 10 a.m., and first thing when I show up, three prison deputies walk up, and they give me the wand, and they put all my stuff through the x-ray machine, give me the pat down, and it was like, it was stern, right? Uh And I'm like, okay, this is a prison, this is sort of the the standard operating procedure, they're going to make sure I'm not bringing in contraband, whatever. Then they drag me down this long hall along the block, Mm -hmm. and open up this big metal door and say, the warden will meet you in here in a second. And it's one of those four concrete walls, no windows, iron table bolted to the floor situations. It was an interrogation room, essentially. Yeah. And I'm sitting here waiting behind this big metal door (laughs) and nothing. And 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by. Finally, after a half hour, the warden opens up the big metal door, ka-chunk, pulls it open, pulls this steel chair bag, drags it across the concrete floor, <laughs> sits down with the chair backwards, his arms crossed in front of him, and says, So, you've got some questions for me? <laughs> it was a total power play. Yep. And and he was just flexing those muscles to say, Look here, Scooter, we're still in charge. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not... Uh, it's not fun to be tangled up on the wrong side of, uh, of a law enforcement agency like that. We should note that you stayed in the news game for a few more years, and then you transitioned into a public relations career in Greenville. Um, when did you first learn that this old story from your past was about to become really relevant again, and, and how did that make you feel? That was, um, okay, here's, here, here's a funny story. Um, 
it's probably last October 2018. This is I remember it vividly because I was getting my oil changed. And I, you know, you get, I get a phone call from California and I'm like, okay, this is, this is a spam call. So I just let it go. <laughs> Voicemail pops up and, and I listen to it and it's, um, Jamie Hernandez from, from the show. Who's one of the producer directors. And he just has this message like, Hey, you know, I'm calling, we're doing a show. He was like, this could be for HBO. We don't have everything signed yet. But, you know, I want to talk about if you remember this FBI case with McDonald's. And so I call him back like, yeah, I remember. And we chat for a few minutes. And he's like, can you tell me about the facts? And I go into full PR guy mode because at this point I hadn't talked about this in years. And while there wasn't like a blood oath with the FBI, but like there's a gentleman's agreement, like just don't talk about it. You know, right. don't make it. Don't get egg on our face. Yeah. And so I never brought it up, never th- thought anything about it. And I'm like, um, facts. Um, what are you talking about? He's like, well, the FBI told me. I'm like, <laughs> Who at the FBI told you? And it was Dwight Baker. And I says, you know, I'm about to call you back on this. And I said, you have to have Dwight Baker's phone number. <laughs> he goes, yeah, here it is. And, and so I called Dwight Baker because my thing is, I told this for so long. I didn't want to be like, oh, here's a guy showed up on HBO in front of the FBI on the bus. And luckily, Dwight Baker called me back. And he's like, yeah, no, we, to- we told them about it. And, you know, they know about it. And we actually gave them your name. because It was kind of scary. There's a file with my name somewhere in the, the FBI somewhere. You know, John Boyanowski. I hope it's a good file. So they gave me that. So then I called Jimmy back. I'm like, yep, I can talk to you about the facts. It did happen. And uh, about two days later, they were in my office in Greenville and, and filming. Looking back at all of this now, how do you look at it? differently now that instead of being a news guy you're in a pr role oh man (laughs) because it is it is a public relations story of epic proportions definitely is i can say this um (laughs) on this side of it i couldn't imagine the pr fallout you know we've sent the wrong emails a couple times you know someone you type in one name and someone gets in there that happens but faxing your whole investigation i the PR fallout, if that had happened, I mean, would have been monumental. And, and I will say this. The funny thing is, you know, we do do a lot of crisis communications and it's, you know, we, we have a secrecy. You know, we don't tell people what we, we learned and we, we sign confidentiality forms. So someone, you know, joked like, well, you know, you, now you know, you definitely trust John Wojnowski. He can get a secret for 19 years for no reason whatsoever. I, that's that's a pretty good badge of honor right there. And, <laughs> and I have to say that one of the most incredible things about this documentary to me now is the way that they got these big, huge institutions like McDonald's and the FBI to participate. Speaking as a a former reporter and and an occasional documentarian, calling up somebody like McDonald's and being like, hey, we're doing a story that's not necessarily flattering to you, but do you want to provide us unfettered access to all the people that played a role in it is a tough (laughs) sell. How do you think that James Lee Hernandez incentivized these organizations to participate in this documentary? You know, that's a great question. My only is speculative. You know, I believe I think he was just dogged about it. I put that same question to directors James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte. Just how enthusiastic was McDonald's to be the subject of an HBO documentary? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. They, yeah yeah they, they did not want to i mean so james actually first reached out and there was you know at least a, an initial conversation that seemed like okay maybe this could go somewhere and literally the next day it was an official denial <laughs> this was in summer 2017 like within the same week that i talked to mark debro and tom Kinnear and chris graham and doug Matthews. all the guys from the fbi right. for the for, yeah for the very first time it was like the the seed of the project I think this was even prior to us like sitting down for lunch. 
And and so, you know, maybe eight months, you know, go by, nine months after we got the denial, that we decided to reach back out. We wrote them a letter and uh, and then followed up with them and said, look, you know, we realize that you guys don't want to be a part of it, um, but uh, hear us out, you know, understand that, like, this is, you know, what the FBI's point of view is. The FBI is talking about you guys. Just meet with us and, you know, we'll take it from there. And so they agreed to a sit-down meeting. And uh, we flew up to Chicago and met with every C-level exec in one room. Uh, Amy Murray was there, who at the time, you know, we had celebrity status in, in our mind. Uh <laughs> And they were, you know, they were open to it. Um, but, you know, one of the very first questions that they asked, uh, you know, because Mark Wahlberg is one of our producers, um, executive producers on, on the series, was, is this Mark Wahlberg's secret plan to get our secret sauce? <laughs> and, uh, and we were, you know, we at least felt like they had a good sense of humor and they were open to hearing us out. And they said that they'll think about it. They were going to regroup and uh, they'd let us know. And like, a month goes by, two months goes by. They have a reorganization in the uh, in the and, higher ups, the level rank, yeah, exactly. And then ultimately, you know, we we just we said like, guys, if we're gonna if we're gonna do it, now's the time because uh, the show's coming out. And um, they they said okay, we set a date and we made it happen. And it, we actually felt like you know it it was a good move for for them to make, and, and it was very much in line with what they did with the FBI back then, you know, they, they didn't have to help the FBI, you know, for those of, you know, hopefully people are listening at this point have actually watched at least the first few episodes of the series. If you haven't yet do it. Yeah. The FBI yeah. asked McDonald's to run a game again, uh, the final game so that they could catch who was, you know, behind it, who was in the act. And McDonald's did not have to do that. You know, they could have very easily just said, and what guys, we're just going to close up shop. This is the end of the McDonald's Monopoly promotional games. And the American public doesn't know it. They don't ever have to know that this was ever rigged. And they decided not to do that. They felt like it was ethically the right thing to do to actually catch who was behind this and to find out how far back it went so that they could actually do something about it. And for us, we just felt like you know we wanted them to participate in the documentary series. Uh, they didn't have to do it, but ethically, they felt like, okay, they, you know, it was important for them to share their side of the story. Well, and from a public relations standpoint, they're able to come off in the documentary as uh, heroes of a sort. And this is a thing that I say until I'm blue in the face, but as an institution like McDonald's, you have more power to protect your reputation by cooperating with documentarians, with journalists, than by running away from them. What do you think about that, James? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is. It's a, a crappy thing in general, but silence uh, really gives the presumption of guilt. If we do this thing and they don't talk, all of a sudden you start to think these questions. People will start asking, well, why, why didn't they participate? What did they have to hide? Whether they had something like that or not. Um, from their perspective, McDonald's is one of the most fiercely protective companies of their own brand. They really successfully align themselves with their customers and th their marketing is so good. Growing up, you and McDonald's is part of your family. It was a treat no matter what class rank you were. And so it's understandable that they would want to try to protect themselves. And it's much easier to say nothing than to try and explain it. But to us, it was we never looked at it 
as any sort of hit piece. We knew that they were a victim of this, um, that it was something that was happening outside of their walls that they, they didn't know about. And so when we met with them, we told them, like, we want you to tell your story. This isn't uh, super size me or anything <laughs> like that. We're not going to try and do some crazy left turn and talk about how cholesterol is bad for you. We just want people to look at you and think like, man, normally corporations always err on the side of what's better financially. And your company went completely against the grain on that and did what they felt was best for the customers, knowing that they're a target if this goes south. Well, and between us, too, I think they might have had another motive for cooperating, because I'll tell you this. In telling your story, you got to use all sorts of really cool old vintage footage from those 90s McDonald's TV commercials. (laughs) And I'm not going to lie, it kind of left me jonesing for a Big Mac a lot more than I have in a really long time. (laughs) We we promised that was not the intention, nor did we we ever promise that would actually be uh, the effect. So, yeah, I mean... you know, those commercials are, I mean, you can watch them on YouTube. <laughs> Many of oh, them. Oh, they're fun. Uh, but yeah, they're so they, over the top. They do take you back. I want to take a minute to celebrate someone who I think is one of the unsung heroes of the documentary, and that's Amy Murray, the McDonald's marketing manager who wound up in the center of this zany FBI sting to catch the scammers. On the one hand, you've got a guy like Doug Matthews who was so stoked to go undercover as a film crew and tape segments from these scammers, and then she just seemed so mortified and overwhelmed to be a part of it, and yet she went through with it. She did it because it was the right thing to do. Uh, Did you get a sense in talking to her? What what makes her tick? What was going through her mind while all this happened? Well, she's got a deep history with McDonald's. In fact, in our podcast, companion podcast series that we did, we included a deleted scene where she tells us how uh, her father was actually the one who created the Ronald McDonald house. You know, she started McDonald's uh, as an intern and uh, has been there for, you know, well over 20 years. So like at that time, like she just, she felt this like incredible betrayal for something that, that was so beloved and something that she was so proud of. The way that she put it to us was I, just what's the fastest way that we can make this wrong a right? One other thing that I did want to note, the HBO series podcast is a thing now. They did one for Chernobyl, which I was obsessed with. They did Watchmen. And now you guys did one for McMillions. Uh, what is HBO like? And what are you guys like about having a podcast as a means for your viewers to dig in even deeper with these shows that they love? Uh, we absolutely love it. I, it was something that we had discussed early on because we originally had five episodes eventually um, had shown HBO that we needed six. And even with six episodes, there were so many interesting stories that we just couldn't fit within the body of the show. And so we had broached that idea very early on. And then once uh, Chernobyl came out with theirs and Watchmen came out with theirs, we were really, we were excited. Like, okay, cool. There's a precedent for this now. Uh, they've not done it for a documentary yet, but we talked to them. We pitched the entire idea of, of how it would be different and what more it could add to the show. So you guys went to them and said, we want this. Yeah. Yes. And that's yes. the great yes. thing about HBO is that they're extremely artist friendly. They're open to any zany ideas that we have and, and have many great ideas uh, themselves. And 
So they were really open to it. And we showed the, the roadmap of how the show would work. And they ended up agreeing and we were able to do it. We're really, really excited about it because <laughs> it allowed us to tell these stories. But also at the same time, it was a fun thing for Brian and I to do because we had never uh, done a podcast before. I think that had we not done it as well, we would have felt like, gosh, you know, all where where would we have put all these great little stories and, and moments that we, we couldn't capture within the series and doing, um, you know, further interviews with some of our key subjects really, you know, allowed for their characters to be further explained. And it was, it was a great experience. Uh, Brian, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention that you in the past uh, were involved with another one of my favorite documentary projects of all time, the Foo Fighters Sonic Highway series on HBO. What was that like to work on? Did you get to meet Dave Grohl? Um, I did get to meet Dave Grohl. He's like exactly how you would imagine him to be. Uh, he's basically like the rock star version of Doug Matthews. <laughs> he's got this, you know, youthful energy, enthusiasm, and just it's, it's infectious. You know, the moment he walks into the room, there's nothing pretentious about him. Like he doesn't, you know, carry himself in that rock star, you know, bravado. Like he's an awesome, awesome dude. And he, he, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, that was an HBO project, but in sort of in that HBO spirit, he was very supportive of, you know, creative ideas, the team, everybody who was working with him. And he really, like, he gave everyone that freedom to, to do what they needed to do for, you know, for their project. That makes me so happy to hear. That's fantastic. Well, I know we're short on time. I just want to say what an absolute pleasure it's been to speak with the two of you. Um, I think people hear docu-series and some folks get really turned off by that. But what you guys have created is not this stuffy thing at all. It's fun. It's flashy. There are parts that play like a heist movie, and it's just its my favorite thing this year. So James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, co-creators of McMillions, thanks for joining us on the Lead Balloon Podcast. Oh, thanks, thanks for having us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks are also due to Taylor James and Mace Meeks at 42 West for getting me in touch with James and Brian at HBO. Check out all six episodes of McMillions streaming on HBO. And make sure you check out the McMillions podcast for even more in-depth insights into this wacky story. Thanks also to John Boyanowski for sharing his story. And a very specific thanks for nothing, the PR team at McDonald's, who didn't just deny my request to talk to Amy Murray. They ignored it completely. Like I told James and Brian, you're always better off working with a documentarian than running away from them. And as a for instance, if McDonald's had worked with me on this episode, they would have been within their rights to ask me not to run with this clip. This isn't supersize me or anything <laughs> like that. We're not going to do some crazy left turn and talk about how cholesterol is bad for you. Ah, well, missed opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the Lead Balloon podcast feed, share it with your friends and colleagues, and you're really doing me a favor. Feedback is always welcome in the comments section or at dusty at podcampmedia.com. And if you've got a story that's perfect for the show, I would love to hear from you. Lead Balloon is produced by Podcamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production solutions for businesses. Check out our website, podcampmedia.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for the extra fun stuff. Until the next time, thanks for letting me into your coronavirus quarantine zone. I'm Dusty Weiss. Be well.